Welcome to another episode of the From the Ground Up podcast produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide. I'm your host, editor, and producer, Jeffrey Moser, recording from the ancestral homelands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee homelands, now known as Milwaukee, Wisconsin. These episodes are shared digitally to the internet. Let's take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded in the technology, structure, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the work we make leaves a significant carbon footprint contributing to climate change that disproportionately affects indigenous people worldwide. I invite you to join me in acknowledging all this, as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time, and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Artists, y'all, I'm so excited for you to listen in on this one. It has a bit of history here for me, so if you'll please indulge me, I have to say that seeing the play Ameriville by Universes at Actors Theatre of Louisville at the Humana Festival of New American Plays was one of those life-changing moments for me. The show was current, it was political, it was collaborative, it was exciting, it was spectacle, it was genuine. It was one of the first ensemble-based theater pieces that was sold as such at a large regional theater that I had ever encountered. It got me asking the questions that have led me to your ears today. And as it turns out, I was in the same audience watching Universes as was Allison Carey, one of my guests today. Though, of course, we didn't know each other yet. Allison was there on behalf of Oregon Shakespeare Festival and thus at the start of a very special relationship. It also led to how Universes became the resident ensemble at OSF, where they created work only as they can. I knew about this partnership long before I knew that the Center Theater Group was creating the Roadmap to Innovation producing model. So for me, this producing process became my North Star in terms of producing opportunities for ensembles. Today's interview is with three folks. Allison Carey, the former director of American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle at OSF, as well as Mildred Ruiz-Sapp and Stephen Sapp of Universes. And I have to say, it was pretty amazing to feel the exchange of energy between them. It was especially meaningful, as about a month prior to this recording, Allison had resigned from her position after 14 years, and had decided to leave Ashland, Oregon altogether. So this conversation is as much informational as it is a reflection of the heartfelt relationship that went beyond a creative partnership. We use their work on Universe's production of Party People as a case study for much of this conversation. A few things to say before we get into it. First, you may hear a few internet connectivity issues and lagging throughout. I'll do my best to address it in the audio transcription page on HowlRound.com. And Stephen mentions Roberta Uno, who is a director and the director of the arts in A Changing America at CalArts, as well as a senior program officer at the Ford Foundation. This interview took place on September 27th, 2021, and all three of my interviewees zoomed in from the ancestral lands of the Shastla and Tecalma peoples, now known as Ashland, Oregon. I spoke the first time we met Alice and Carrie was during an American. It was, and I stalked them in the lobby and offered them a commission. Yes, you did. <laughs> that is exactly how the story goes. Best thing I ever did. Well, <laughs> you know, having kids was okay, but. <laughs> you know, that answers all my questions. Thanks, y'all. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, so can you describe who you make work for? I'll say this, and you can jump in. You know, obviously, when we started, um, we were performing for the, our community, people in the neighborhood, 
and things of that nature. That's where we started. That's where we were. Even when we were going sort of venturing downtown, sort of in the New Yorkian Poets Cafe, sort of the poetry, spoken word, hip hop, jazz world, we were still pretty much performing in front of the choir. You know what I mean? People who got it, wanted to come get it and receive it. We were right there. And then as our career progressed, we started ending up in places where they didn't know you. They didn't stick from where we were from, but was what we were doing universal enough to come up, you know, to reach folks from here, there, or whatever. And I think that was a big testament to the work because we were able to sort of get off of the neighborhood, get out of the neighborhood, get out of the open mic scene. And we were actually very well known for. We could have stayed there and been, as we would say, ghetto celebs to the end. <laughs> but we got these interesting offers with some interesting theater practitioners and we studied it anyway. So it was just a natural progression. So we create work for people who are like us and want to hear us and things of that nature. But it also, our, our voice has gotten bigger and the landscape of who we're speaking to is bigger. But still in all, um, I still want some young black kid from somewhere or Puerto Rican girl or whatever to come to a theater where she wouldn't expect to hear or see herself or people who she knows this big on a stage, which is the same stage she saw Shakespeare in two months previous. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if that can, if that happens, that's the, that's the most beautiful thing. I mean, I think that to add to that, I, I would say, you know, we create work about all the people that we encounter, about ourselves, about our own com like families and friends and circles, but about other people that we encounter. You know, we bring those people, they become part of our circle as we go around, like it just all sticks to us and we keep traveling through whatever this is. And it's like, now that person is part of me and that person is part of me. And I've been impacted and influenced in one way or another by all of these different people who some are like-minded, some are not, you know, even people who don't agree with us are stuck to us. Um, and you bring them with you too. And you're, and you want to also lift their voice up in some kind of way. I think even, especially if we don't agree with, with a person or a character, we try to bring that person's humanity to the forefront and to just really like tell stories that so many different people can find themselves in. That's kind of the way that we create work. It's obviously us. And for us to walk on stage or create this kind of work is a political act in and of itself. So our politics will always be entwined in whatever it is that we do. But we also try to bring other people's politics in it as well, because if not, that wouldn't be a very interesting conversation. It would be a one-sided conversation. So we try to bring it all in. That's fantastic. So Allison, you talked about this a little bit earlier. So then where along the way did you offer that commission that you spoke of to universes? Um, well, we I, I had known about universes, of course, because... Everybody knows about universes, but I had never seen their work because I had been in LA with Cornerstone Theater Company while most of y'all were in New York, most of the time you're in New York. So Claudia Alec was like, universe is the bomb. So we, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Humana and see Merivale. And it was like, you know, uh, uh, it was that thing, you know, it's that struck by lightning artistic experience. I, did, I walked outside and I called Bill Rausch, who is then artistic director of OSF, and he and I had started Cornerstone Theater Company together. And I said, I, I, I have to offer universes a commission. And he was like, OK. <laughs> so I went back in and that's what happened. And I, I do think in terms of 
just looking at my perception of who their work is for, I think everything you said is really smart. And what I would say, and I think it has something to do with my time with Cornerstone, like this notion of ensembleness. Your work also really speaks really strongly to people who want to be with other people, who want to make sense of the world with other people. Because when you're on stage, it's not, I mean, yes, you're all these singular talents, but you're also such a powerful collective devotion mm. to humanness and that's that just pours off the stage and fills audience members with that spirit of human connection and i think that's why the work works so well everywhere even people who sometimes i think pretend they don't people really like to feel human connection and to see it and act it in front of them in such a powerful and pure and uh excellent way <laughs> i know everyone's crying uh this is great it's just the truth truth is powerful <laughs> <laughs> following that commission what were the steps or what were the next moments before universes was in resident ensemble at osf um, well that's a long story I know. well i i just gotta say so you know allison appearing at the human festival was like one of the biggest doors opening in our life right so even though we have been already kind of on a journey, on a trajectory, and we were on a road, Allison brought us onto a completely different road. I mean, we're, we're actually still in Ashland, Oregon. We're calling you from here, you know? <laughs> so it has it actually changed the course of our life in, in so many ways, right? So just that moment where Steve talks about she was in the lobby and she held my hand. And it was like that moment where you're like, Something is gonna something completely changed and you didn't know it at the moment, but it did. So we came here, we were commissioned in 2009. We came here in, in 2012 to make party people. And while we were when we left the Bronx, right, we were like, well, we're gonna let's pack up our stuff in this apartment that we've been in for so many years. And when we come back, we'll just get a new place, right? So we packed up all of our stuff and we put it into storage. And but so the goal was to come back home to do party people, be free of rent, you know, and and all of that, just pay like a storage unit and just come to OSF and then go home and figure the rest of life out. And what happened here is that Allison Carey took such incredible care of us in so many ways, you know, in, in more ways than one, like from even getting a car from, you know, first I'm bar borrowing her car. Our Ben's car. And then like, it just became so like our relationship was just beyond what the project was. And kind of like, she talks about we care for people and humanity and the spaces that people are in. But Allison is a caregiver. And she was like, what's happening? Where's where's your son? How can I help? How can I support? You need a car. Da, 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 da. So really making life work for us for an, a year the way that it had never worked for us before. And then having quest here even even taking us around to choose schools for our son right so took us to see some options and said are you sure you want this one how about this one and it ended up you know our son went to school here and then by the end of the run he's looking out into a field and there's lots of day of school lots of cows out there you know what i'm saying this is like this, the the second day of school or something for him and he's just like can we stay Right. And his his playground in the Bronx, it, it was basically uh, I think there were maybe I don't know if there it was the one or two basketball. It was a teacher's hoops. it was a teacher's parking the lot. The teacher's parking lot. So if the, there were cars that they had to maneuver around or 
um, they couldn't play because all the teachers had their cars in there, you know, and it was a concrete lot. That was their playground. And he was, he's looking at a field full of cows and a, a track. He was like, this is like the movies, mom. A black and Puerto Rican kid from the Bronx now arriving at this movie set. And there are actors everywhere and there are, there, a world is going on. So of course we were like, let's try to stay. And we did, we found, we found ourselves a little place to rent which now we purchased. And um, then, then after that, we were like, I guess we're here. So the next step was, what do we do now? And of course, Bill Roush and Allison Carey and the whole family at OSF, they were like, well, what do you want to do? You know, you want to be the ensemble? You know, we, we went and we talked with Roberto Uno from the Ford Foundation, and we got this, some funding to help support us being the ensemble residents here at OSF. And that journey began. That's a, that was the second step of the journey. And what would that mean? How we could create work? Just be part of the whole ecosystem here. I'll say it like this for those people who are Star Wars fans. <laughs> it's kind of like I was Luke Skywalker and Allison was our Ben Kenobi. And we said, do you want to come to Tatooine? It was like, Tatooine? <laughs> and, you know, we took the offer, you know, and, uh, and we went that to That hero's journey. Yeah, you know? I mean, seriously, yeah. if you think about the hero's journey, it's always the offer. And it was like, I always try to pay attention to those offers. And it was a real genuine offer. It wasn't about money. Even someone bringing us on to be sort of, and I'll say it, sort of like the colored experience on a particular month or whatever it was. This was a legitimate like conversation and I felt it. And I'll say it, I'm not going to say what the number was, but even when she was like, well, this is the commission. It was kind of like, usually I'll go like, I'll look at it and be like, okay. And now the negotiation begins. I looked at it. I was like, and we have nothing else to really talk about. Like, this is great. <laughs> like, it was cool. Like, it was like, wow, she came for real. Like, great. You know, let's get to work. And just that alone, and look, and it may seem small, but those little things meant a lot. And they, and they, and they registered in a deep way with us. So when we were like, okay, we really going to share our lives with people. Um, you know, you, you, I mean, we all do theater. So you do, you, you come in from rehearsal and you go home, but it's like, no, we really like, you know, her kids and our kids know each other. It's like, we watch our kids grow up and, and see each other grow, you know, in this field together. So it, but it took something like that, which seemed, may have seemed real innocent at that moment, but it was a legitimate, you know, connection, which yeah. was really nice. You know, we're New Yorkers born and raised native New Yorkers. Right. And the crazy thing is that we, it was so hard to see artists and artistic directors and, and be part of a theater in New York, right? Other than Pregones, that they, Pregones doors were always open, you know? So aside from Pregones, the regional theater scene and all of that was really hard for us to get into in New York. And New York Theater Workshop obviously gave us our first shot and stuff like that, but it's that kind of like one, one production shots, right? And then you have to wait who to, if ever, they'll do another work of yours. I mean, New York Theater Workshop did do two of our works, but it was such a big span of time that there was no way for us to really like get our feet in there. But we started to notice that so many people were coming to OSF. We were seeing more people at OSF from throughout the field that we wouldn't have seen if we had just stayed in the Bronx. And it was crazy. I don't even know how that was happening, including Claudia Alec was bringing a lot of our poetry and performance scene up here. So we had our poetry and performance scene moving and flowing through here. Plus you had OSF that was bringing our, the artistic directors that we never had even a reach to. Now, because it's such a small village, this little town of ours here, 
you're in town, you might as well have dinner with me. You know, it was kind of like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, in opposed to like, I'm in New York, I there's no way I'm going to have, you know, have time, uh, uh, that much airtime from Oscar Eustace. It's like, hey, Oscar, you and Angela, you want to have, you know, so, or whoever, let's have drinks at Martino's after a show or whatever. So it was kind of like, it's such a small container of a space that, but everyone was coming. Come now, all of a sudden, it was our world too, and that became a new way of us being able to stay connected to the field as a whole. We actually could sit here and just welcome you, and 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 also have business conversations as we went. But like you know, so it was. Uh, I think it was one of the greatest things that happened to us. Plus, it is gorgeous here. <laughs> it is gorgeous. I know. I've had the deer follow me home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they you got to watch out for them. The program we commissioned Universes Through American Revolutions had the necessity requirement of talking about American history and trying to bring in as many different perspectives on what American history is. And so one of the things when I saw Maraville, I was like, but they already did their show. Well, they'll just have to do another one, you know, that spoke <laughs> the meaning of the United States and the history of the United States so deeply. And I think in some ways, I can't imagine that cycle without universes because they hold the universes of the United States within their <laughs> work. And I also think the generosity that they showed in being willing to come to Oregon, it's a pain in the ass to get here. <laughs> and it's not always the friendliest place for anybody. It's certainly not always the friendliest place for people of color. As a matter of fact, it's never the friendliest place for people of color. So, and I, I, I don't mean to use, put my words and observations on your experience, Mildred and Stephen, but without that generosity of spirit, being willing to come and share and create the work here and to allow our audiences to see it, I don't see how a program like American Revolutions could work. Because if it's just the artists that um, have made their decades long home in the regional theater, then what kind of portrait of the United States would that create? It would be continuing the same false portrait and the same uh, closed door, closed eye view of this country that we all live in together. I and mean, thank you. And I'm so glad you came because like, <laughs> I love you so much. And I'm also so appreciative of your willingness to go on this ride out in the middle of fucking nowhere in Oregon. So yeah, American Revolutions is a brilliant project, right? First of all, we had been talking about America and, and everything we do, but this particular project and the people that it was bringing together, right? So first of all, it's an honor for us to even be in the midst of all these other incredible playwrights, right? Let's start with Culture Clash, right? Culture Clash, I had heard about Culture Clash when I was in in college, I tried to bring them out once upon a time. And of course I didn't have the money to do it, but Culture Clash are icons to us. And they're like legends, right? Living legends. And now they're friends. It was so amazing to just be like, you're you're invited to be part of this program. And we have Lynn Nottage and we have Culture Clash and Robert Schenken and us. And it was like, it was a little surreal sometimes walking into so the room like, oh, there's Lisa Crone and, and oh, Paula Vogel just oh said goodness. hi to us. It's like, okay. Like, you know. what, kind of, what kind of world, right? Like what kind of amazing world Allison and Bill created for all these people to come together? But, a, but again, like I said earlier, 
It's about how people invite you to quote unquote the party and how they treat you when you're in the party. So because Allison invited us into those particular rooms with those particular folk at this particular time, I was like, well, well, yeah, 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 we deserve to be here, you know? And then they look at you and they're like, oh my God, I saw your work. You're like, oh my God, I saw your, you know what I mean? And so it, it, it really changed the perception about us in a lot of cases. Even to us. Um, you know, how people talk to us and related to us, how we looked up at ourselves, like, well, all right, we're here. We know we can do it. Let's, and, and I'm happy that we were able to be our true authentic selves creating the art. What came out was what we felt. And it was supported in a way it was like, okay, like people actually really hear us. And then we'll see where, where it lands, you know, in, in Oregon, which we were in one sense not afraid of because we performed in so many different places. We had been a human Alaska. You know, we'd been in like Homer, Alaska in a barn. You know, like we've been to, we performed in some places. So OSF was just another sort of like, this is great. It'll be amazing to see how this registers. But to see the activists who came up, um, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords who actually were able to come to Ashton to see the piece. And for them to see their, tor- their story told this big um, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival meant a lot, you know, in ways that, you know, will never be documented or remembered. But we know for a fact, it, it touched them deeply, deeply, deeply. I mean, the great thing is Allison made the invitation and then didn't restrict us to any rules, you know? Yeah. It, it was kind of like, so what do you want to write about? We're going to give you a commission because of this piece you wrote on Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans. Right. That inspired me to say, oh, yeah, definitely. And then now that you have the commission, what do you want to write about? So that now it's still up to us. It's still on our it's still in our ball court. And, and, and it's like, OK, this is what we're going to do. We're going to write about the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and, in Ashland, Oregon. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so it's kind of like to have the permission and to have the resources to just do whatever you want to dream the way that you have always been dreaming. No censorship, no restriction on content. Just what do you want to do? Go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it really was that. And, and I will tell you this, though, and, and that that being said, um, you also have to surround yourself with the proper team. You know, this proper team has to be around us. Lisa Tommy was our director and was was there in the trenches with us, crying in rehearsal rooms <laughs> as we wrote things like the, there's moments where it's literally the four of us in a room at four o'clock in the morning in a black swan lab and we have a 10 o'clock rehearsal and we're I think Carl was over there and Carl is and we're writing the ending boohoo crying because of the things we were actually bringing up in the room crying and then having rehearsal at 10 o'clock like having that type of space to really kind of create um was really important you know it was really important for us to feel like okay this is which allowed the best work to come out and you know there's amazing designers that are in the room there are amazing crew here who are around working so all of this stuff the amazing actors who we met and became you know friends with not just actors in a play or colleagues like friends like family with a lot of these folks so it all of that lends itself to what great collaborations can be i think how how people could sort of receive what american revolutions meant to OSF, and, you know, beyond just what it meant to us, what it meant to OSF and what it meant to the theater field in general, um, just looking at how Allison ran the program itself could be something that everyone should sort of look at and track um, in terms of how you treat artists 
and how artists work is you know produced and presented to the world i still don't think that the field realizes the importance of this project in all honesty a lot of times the work that we create people they tie it to an institution right so now especially nowadays when we're talking about predominantly white institutions and like what comes out of it, what doesn't, whatever, whatever's happening. And even like, you know, we've been talking, Allison, this thing needs to get published. Like this, the amount of incredible work that has been created by these like legendary people in this legendary time has to be solidified. Like it has to live forever. And a lot of people be like, oh, well, that's just like an OSF project, you know? And it's like, y'all don't even know, you know? So I'm just saying this now, one day when somebody realizes, okay, we told you so. Okay. And everybody's just, <laughs> you know, everybody's just so about, oh, well, that's OSF. Oh, well, that's Berkeley Rep. Oh, well, that's this or that's that, you know, belongs to that place. But what was created in this particular project, which, which is bigger than OSF in my opinion, right? Because it can even live beyond it. And, and it is something that I've never seen in this way. And with the amount of, um, the, the way that each of those playwrights brought the stories of this country into some kinds of perspective. I mean, Sweat is a prime example, right? It's still running. People are still wanting to hear. And, that, and they, don't even, they haven't even seen the entire canon that has been built under this umbrella, right? So you have one or two that you've seen. You've seen LBJ. I don't know what else. But you got to get it together, America, because this has been created. And actually, it's like a... It is, it is a, a, a floor plan. And I think we can, it can, other people can build on it, right? Because I just think it's some of the most important work that we've been a part of, that we've been a part of this community that's been creating this kind of work. Really kind of you to say that. And I, and I just have to reinforce, OSF was a box, an empty theater, right? And it only becomes meaningful when artists like you fill up that space. Awesome, and, don't it's make not it the program, it's y'all. <laughs> Jeffrey, ask another question. Ask another question. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm letting these moments roll, you know? <laughs> I want to go back to the idea of the Ford Foundation, which, so you all, universes, went to Ford Foundation and said, hey, here's an idea. And then OSF said, that's a good idea. And then, you know, so how the- producers. We've always been, Mildred said, we've always been producers. And we had, <laughs> there was a couple of things that we, we know just in terms of as freelance artists that, you know, you have to sort of generate your own funds. So it, it helps when you go to a theater if you have something, as 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 Tony Tacconi would say, you got some skin in the game. <laughs> so we were already sort of looking around for money to help support the project. We got a yeah, National Theater Project, NIFA. Yes, yeah. National Theater Project grant, um, which gave us a nice uh, bit of money, a nice budget to go around and interview Black Panthers and Young Lords. Yeah. So you know we had that money, and then we we had a we have a long-standing relationship with Roberta Uno, dating back to where she was at New World Theater mm-hmm. um, in Massachusetts. So when she was at the Ford Foundation, and we're talking 1990s. about the things we're doing, and she was like, "Well, how can I help you know with the project?" And it was I think at that point some of the funds were to get them to Ashland, and Roberta was willing to put up money for that. Again, it's a great collaboration with between the commissioning money between us finding that money and then osf resources itself was able to sort of pull all of it together so you know but there's more that's important about this particular grant bringing black panthers and young lords from across the country right so aside from the institution doing its own audience development work right we had a responsibility to our community and to our audiences to bring them in and to have them see themselves so that's really like we 
why we did that that huge push so like really welcome them into into the space as well and have them be like you know teaching having lectures at at sou or you know like just building community here as well was really important and then beyond that we got a second ford grant which was the one that got us into the into the residency if i'm remembering correctly i think ford had actually resisted uh, supporting OSF for a long time, for all the reasons one might imagine, being such a profoundly white theater, not solely, but predominantly, and very much the audiences are, I'm not sure it's still true, but certainly then uh, we're actually older and whiter than um, most regional theater audiences, which is really saying something. <laughs> and so it was a great gift that universes gave to OSF to get us, you know, in conversation with the Ford Foundation. And a couple of shout outs now, I just... Aaron Washington, who made so many arrangements with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, mm -hmm. Blessings Bonner, uh, Julie Jubiner, then Associate Director of American Revolutions, you know, the Collins Foundation and then the Mellon Foundation, you know, and I, I think of Joe Hodge at Playmakers who brought y'all out oh, to yeah, do right. the workshop. And, you know, it just, it was, um, the, there were some great key individuals, but there were also just all these institutions who kind of stepped up and said, how can I help? Like, you know, playmakers rep in North Carolina is like, well, we have a space uh, and we're like, cool, you know, we'll pay to get them there and then you take care of them. Um, and I think, I mean, again, I think that's part of what universes inspires in people. Like, I want to be part of the party and I want to help because I see how much your art helps the world. So how can I help you? Oh. Because we've always been on the road, we love to go to people's houses, you know, like people's theaters and to like, it's like it, for us to get on a plane is like getting in a cab. I'm coming, um, <laughs> you know, so and, and because that's what we've always done. So even though we're here or we're in New York or wherever we are, we're oh, we've never really been living anywhere in particular. We always say we live in United Airlines almost like, you know, <laughs> just to try to, but to have these relationships with all these different individuals, I, I, I don't think we've ever been afraid of that. And I think they've always been welcoming of us coming in and they'll give us a house. This particular thing, there were a lot of, a lot of hands in the brewing of what became party people. We have this ginormous task. We have this great responsibility to OSF, but we've given ourselves this ginormous responsibility to hold these stories together. And then now you have all these people who are like, all right, rolling up their sleeves and saying, so how do we get it done? Let's make it happen. I was just actually looking at the grant report for the Ford Foundation. The scale of what universes did some with our help, but also the salons you had around the country. I mean, it, it just involves so many people. And, you know, we, the Ford Money brought in 25, 30 Young Lords and, um, and Black Panthers. Part of the impact of the work is how universes draws people to, to universes, but also people come to universes because universes is this great ensemble. But again, it carries the spirit of ensemble out into everything it does. So it was, you know, Black Panthers and Young Lords came because also there were other Black Panthers and Young Lords coming. Everything they do makes the world larger. It's amazing how you sort of became a magnet. Do you think that funders are interested or excited in seeing ensemble-based work on regional theater stages or on presenting houses stages? Yes, they are excited. You have to connect the dots for them to kind of go like, okay, yeah. I'm not going to say we were the first to do it. Let's say in a given year, we can do a regional theater, a 50-seat house somewhere, a 150-seat house somewhere, 
an 800-seat house somewhere, a community. Like, this is all in the span of a year. And they're all funded from different um, perspectives. A community center, a prison. So they, <laughs> we would then sort of make these connections. So the work we would do, let's say, in a small community center may have been a, the opening 10 minutes of Ameriville could have been created over there. So then you've connected Ameriville to the Humana Festival, to this community center that no one's ever heard of, but there's a link to it. So we used, you know, our early days of open mics and small performance spaces and things like that to really fine tune who we are as artists and as a company and raising funds. So when we arrived at OSF, we didn't just kick back and be like, OSF has this much money and we're going to wait for them to spend this much money on what it is we need. And it was like, well, in order to meet these folks, we need to get out some money over here. The funders got really excited when you make the connection for them to see it. Like, oh, this is how that works. Great. This is what they want theaters to be. They don't want to give all the money for it. Be creative and find some. You know, if you got to have $100 and you can bring $35, $40 to the party, that helps greatly with how stuff is spent. So to answer your question, yes. Sometimes I don't think that they see ensembles the way that uh, that they should, you know, especially uh, like now in the era of devised work, right? So we're a different kind, we're, we actually call ourselves an ensemble and there's a different, it's a different world than the devised world, in my opinion. We, we create work, like it's, it's, it's a different way to generate the work, but hopefully the ensemble, like we're, we've been part of the network of ensemble theaters for like ages, right? I, I think if you look at the network, the network of ensemble theaters, and you see how it's still kind of marginalized, that will give you an idea of how even the funders field and the field as a whole has still not embraced ensemble work. If the network of ensemble theater is still in the margins and not leading even the conversations of you know, devised work. How is the network of ensemble theaters not leading the conversation about devised work? It's when somebody else takes the work and your aesthetic and the way that you create things and they want to make something else, but you're still over there doing things. They kind of robbed you a little bit of it so that then they can create something else. Um, So when I see the network of ensemble theaters become like a huge, like, you know, this is the core of the people who we're having conversation with about ensemble work, then I'll tell you that people have really paid attention and not just kind of fed off of it and then going off to do their own thing. Well, first of all, I who knows what's going to happen as the pandemic continues to unfold and what happens in the field. And obviously nobody has that answer. And it certainly scares me a lot that um, it will be easy, easy not to support ensembles because their work costs more, right? That, I mean, I think a lot of theaters... And I think I suffered from this when just first starting out the the, pro, the American Revolutions program is theaters have it in the, their head that they're paying for a piece of art. And then the mechanics of it, well, it doesn't matter whether one person writes it or five people write it, right? That they're just, what matters is that singular piece of art. Now, of course, ensemble-based art is a different kind of art, right? And so it's, you can't, they're not interchangeable, but I think that might be a a value, an investment that goes away. One cannot think that people are completely irrational about making 
larger financial commitments at this point, right? And they should, right? Because I, I still think that ensembles are so much the source of the good blood that's throwing, going through theatrical veins, but it's a, it, it's a scary time. And I would say, you know, the fascinating thing about having both culture class share and then universes and then um, the 1491s, right? Is you're actually getting a little sub company within your company. And that is, you know, outside the obvious that presenting and producing are two very different things, but producing a thing that has a producer within it is like, whoa, like next level meta, whoa, shit, what am I doing? And I, I think a lot of institutions find that really hard because institutions have their way of doing things. And then suddenly someone else, there's someone else there telling them what to do and telling them what to do because they know how to do it, right? And I, I appreciate you, you know, hats off to OSF in terms of how we supported you. But there were also times when, you know, you got stuck in the, you know, the chainsaw of institutional theater. And I think OSF has gotten better at caring for ensembles. You know, the then production model, which isn't going to be, you know, will not hold anymore in the new um, reality of wildfire smoke and global pandemic. There has to be a really intentional willingness and capacity to, to actually change up your processes and not just change up your processes from in a sort of a planned way, but there's two different groups iterating at the same time, the ensemble and the institution, right? Because everyone is always changing their practices and you all have to somehow get on the same train. There is a certain amount of like, once you're just like, fuck it, we're doing a show, <laughs> then it becomes a much easier, but there is institutions, especially as large as an institution as OSF was and still is, there's so much behind you. There, there's so many traditions and rules and unspoken rules and all this stuff. So it's uh, it can be a very, very confusing place to know where to put your hand on what lever to get what done to make what change. It's also utterly awesome, right, to what a gift to have another producing organization in in inside you giving you new energy i'm sorry this is sounding a lot like the movie alien which is getting really weird. <laughs> but um but but it's not it's like what a gift to a, an institutional theater to have another model of how to do things right there be giving you this gift of insight within your organization and so much of it is about institutions who you know in so many now are just hanging on by a thread anyway but that makes me hope that that people will be ever more open to ensembles because I do think that there are lots of individuals and institutions in the field who are looking for new models, right? And something, you know, ensembles with their many challenges, there is that humanity at the core of it, you know, in some sense of equity and sharing and respect that is a great model, not only for institutional theater, but for society. I hope our field has the wisdom to recognize and embrace the models that ensemble theaters offer to us every day. You mentioned chainsaws, and I wonder if there's a, an example of a chainsaw that universes might have gotten caught up in. Well, I, Allison, you pick one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that thing where, you know, when you give birth and it hurts like hell and you instantly forget it. So you can, you know, if you decide to have another child, you're willing to do it because why? And, 
else would you possibly agree to go through that much pain? <laughs> um, so I do think I may have forgotten, but there are, you know, a very simple example is, and this is very OSF specific, right? We're in rotating rep. The props people aren't always available to you, right? Because Tuesday, they're doing party people props and Wednesday, they're doing all the way props and Thursday, they're doing this other thing, right? And so the, a lot of the um, certain departments couldn't be responsive um, and no fault to the props, love your props, just using you <laughs> as an example of a department within the theater. It wasn't unwillingness. It was incapacity. It's like, well, I have to do this thing for this other show. I think that one of the challenges of working at OSF traditionally, and I think the model is going to be quite different moving forward, although I don't know how, because I'm no longer uh, affiliated with OSF, didn't have the same devotion to the show that you were putting on, right? You mm -hmm. had to always share and share the actors and share stage right. managers and share spaces with other shows. So it's funny because we were a pretty big show in in terms of size and in terms of props and in terms of every requirement but we were also in the smaller space the smallest space um and we were a little bit kind of segregated from the other the other two venues like the bomer and the lizzie elizabeth elizabethan actors and everyone meet underneath so there's a whole ecosystem have happening on, in the undergrounds and the bowels of you know, between those theaters. And the Thomas um, is, was completely removed. So we had to kind of also learn, kind of make our way over there and, and try to um, make sure that we were equitably taken care of. If, if I can be totally trying to be correct about it. It's like, well, yes, that's happening over there in that show. And as a matter of fact, we were playing against the um, Robert Schenken's LBJ play, right? And that was in the Bomber. So there were two American Revolutions plays happening in conversation, which was incredible. And one of the greatest moments I just want to say is when we actually did a crossover with our show into the LBJ space. So we brought the, the Black Panther Revolution into... Lyndon Johnson's office, you know, <laughs> and I remember we had our picket signs and we were protesting. And I remember some of us stood up on LBJ's beautiful desk and just started like, you know, did an excerpt of party people and stormed out right in the middle of their tech. And check this out. The revolution is happening across the street while LBJ is over here talking. So it was awesome to have this kind of like pushback. And I think that the buzzsaw or the chainsaw that was happening there wasn't the two plays. It was maybe that OSF didn't see the opportunity to capitalize on that conversation that was happening. Like it could have been so much bigger because you had LBJ in the bigger house and you had the crazy protesters and the revolutionaries in the smaller house. I think if it would have been up to us, it would have been like, there had to be this, the outside, like the world had to know that these were happening. And I know, Allison, like we pushed for it. We talked about this conversation, but I think that it could have been taken even further. And that would have prepared us, better prepared us for both LBJ going out and for party people to go out. Because then both of those pieces moved out into the world. LBJ, I think, made a beeline to Broadway and party people to Oakland, to Berkeley, into the Bay Area. I just feel there was an opportunity missed in how we could have really just had those two go. I totally agree. I mean, OSF at the time uh, was the marketing was very much the whole season. Right. And, but these, 
what was happening between these two shows. I mean, there's always connections between shows, but the marketing department did not have the capacity or at the time the intention to pull out two shows and focus on them. Mm-hmm. As all yeah. shows deserve special attention, right? Of course. So of course. <laughs> part of, you know, OSF, you're selling the experience. We did this amazing thing, and I don't, party people wasn't the first time, but we still hadn't gotten used to it, is we had three whole previews instead of two. Yeah. <laughs> and that's some crazy ass shit to have a show only have two previews. But it was a new play, so we got three. And yeah. this was sort of a revolutionary behavior for OSF, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Many other theaters had figured out that previews are good uh, and many other artists, but, you know, our, our production, our schedule of production had never depended on that to only support a new ensemble based work with three previews before everything's set is fucked. Yeah, I want to go back for a hot second to, I think, Mildred, you said about how ensembles are marginalized creative groups. And I wonder, is it simply a matter of finances that ensembles are marginalized yes (laughs) i mean a lot of times yeah and i'll say that only because um yes obviously it's a bigger budget now on the flip side of that too it's also like for mainstream let's say regional theaters to bring you in the season that you see ensembles sitting in someone's seasons you'll see an individual playwright um and every now you know like maybe city company but city company stayed more performance-based you know, there'd be a few of us who have float around, but a few of us who actually did land in someone's seasons, it is it is a bigger thing. Now, OSF, you know, for example, had a resident company. So we were able to make party people bigger because obviously we had the resources to make it bigger. But a lot of times it does come down to, you know, one, is it finances, what you're paying for? And then B, trusting that this ensemble is going to bring in the type of work that will translate in a regional theater setting. A lot of times what ensemble companies would bring is something that'd be more sort of performance-based or, you know, slightly considered off to the side. So I think, yes, it's not always the case, but I think having sat through many budget meetings around it or or talk with folks, it generally comes down to um, finance. I think that's certainly true. I also think there's a little bit of ego involved um, among some gatekeepers of predominantly white organizations, especially, um, who, of course, have so many more resources, right? But there is a certain sense of royalty that Mm -hmm. artistic directors can develop, right, that ensembles just by their mere existence defy. Say the approach to world premieres, like in the 90s and 2000s. It was so much about old white guys slapping their dicks on the table and saying, this is mine, which is completely contrary to all the ethos of anything good. And you have artistic directors who can develop really intense relationships with individual playwrights and also director plays, right? Whereas ensembles challenge the energy of the singular leader in a really, really healthy way. But I think a lot of people just don't, don't want to be bothered right? Because I've got my kingdom and I've got my, my acolytes. And I, I know I'm being really reductive and I, I don't mean to be cruel or lying, but I do think there are elements of that that you see. And then the other theater isn't doing it. So you're not doing, I mean, the whole thing. Well, there is a lot of truth to that. Just speaking from our own experience, like for instance, we would, Steve and I pretty much like would go to all these meetings or sometimes we would want to bring another member of universes or two and any and this is not just OSF this is like theaters throughout the country right so 
you would be like, you know, they'd be like, well, I don't know. Can we talk to one of you? Like they just couldn't handle more than one person in the room, you know, talking about the business of universes and where we would have conversations in the room with each other. And we knew what we were going to do. We know what everybody's getting paid. There's no secret. Whereas you go into these institutions and you're not even allowed to talk about with other actors or with other playwrights, what you're making, like there's this taboo and this secrecy and this level of hierarchy that you have to kind of push up against, you know, they'll talk to Steve because they can only speak with one person at a time. But we had to learn this way of speaking as one voice. Yes, we're married and that happens automatically. Thank goodness that helps. (laughs) But But when we're in a room with an artistic director, you know, you have to, we pay attention to their the way that their eyes are fluttering or their body language or they're they're about to throw up. I don't know. They can't handle too much information coming at them from two different places. So like I'll step back. There's like this ebb and flow and then Steve will go and we kind of orchestrate the way that we have conversations with Mm -hmm. these leaders because they can only hear things, some of them, from one person. Something we developed really nicely with Bill Roush. It was very organic. And, and I'm, I'm not sure if Bill does this with everyone, but with us, it was every time we would go to his office, the first 10, 15 minutes of our conversation was about family. It had nothing to do with art, very like intensely for 10, 15 minutes. And that would bring down. And it would just be like, okay, we did that. And then we would handle our business. And it kept things sane, I think, almost. And, and, and just feeling like human beings, like Bill was comfortable having a group conversation. Um, not many people are. And so it is about introducing it to some institutions in drips and drabs where let's say I may go first. I always try to make sure eventually the artistic director is going to meet everybody at one time yeah. and is going to have to deal with whoever is on the road. They're going to have to deal with the entire company and the different personalities that we do move as one when we're on the road, yeah. which is how theaters can and should move and, and should operate. So is it financial? Yes. Is it a model that they're used to having function in a specific way and ensembles were not part of that equation. We were not in the bigger sense of the word. So for us in a very weird way, we sort of carved our own niche and fine tuned ourselves in terms of our voice and our aesthetic and things of that nature. So when we got offered to go to Tatooine, (laughs) we were able to step into it fully and be completely comfortable with who we were as a company and everything else like that to be able to accept an offer like that and also flourish with that offer. There's one thing I want to say that I learned from the acting company here at OSF. And this is separate from being a playwright, but one day I was on stage with these incredible artists, right? And it wasn't one of our plays. It was like in in the Elizabethan, a Shakespeare play. And we're all around each other. And some people are like, we, we're having some crazy conversation. And some people, somebody said, yeah, and, you know, I went to Yale and somebody else went to Harvard and somebody else went here. We went to Bard. So we're all kind of throwing our colleges around like a, like a hot potato. Because that's, that's what you do, right? <laughs> you have to justify why you spent so much money and you're still in debt. Um, <laughs> one person in, in the acting company stepped up and said, well, you know, I didn't go to college. I think I only graduated high school. And it put all of it into perspective. And this particular person was a person that I was emulating and like, like I was foaming at the mouth trying to learn everything that that person was doing. And it's like slap in the face. And we were like, what? And it's this idea that 
we're better than someone else because we've had an access or an opportunity to something. I'm bringing that up to say in American theater, people walk around with these chips on their shoulders and well, we're art makers and we know how to do this. And we've produced this many shows and we've done this and we have this much money. And like Allison said, there are so many dicks on the table. You know what I'm saying? That you, you're like, okay, you know, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of the times the artist, the simple artist or the person who's coming up with a creative idea has the power in the room. And that person also knows how to produce. And that person also has been in this situation. They may have more experience than you in a particular area of theater or performance or poetry. So the idea that American theater continues to just like elevate itself and say, well, you know, this is how it's done. And this is how, you know, and then I have these producers, these line producers and this, that, and the other. And, and then an ensemble of people come in and, or a, an, an individual playwright who has not, has not been part of these big institutions and is like, and that's all well and good. And I still want my play to be like this. And the reason why you have a job is because of my play right? Because I wrote this thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just want to put that back into perspective. And I don't know, somebody might get mad at me for saying it. But the fact of the matter is that theater has forgotten why it is here, why it does the, what it does and what, why, how, how it can do what it does, right? So you are here to make theater. The people who create the theater are the artists, so I think that little pyramid has to be tipped on its head. Like it's like there is a there is a there's definitely a dysfunction in way that we perceive each other, even in a room. You know, even an artistic director, I might feel that they're more in power than they even feel that they are. So I think that people need to start deconstructing a lot of these um, the way that they move through all of this and involve the artists more. I think that American theater has stopped involving the actual art makers in a lot of what it's doing even in the leadership of some of these institutions, you know, just to like go into all of it. Like, it's like, where are the, where are the artists that are making the work and how are they being empowered? And, and that means that we would have to step aside sometimes too as producers, right? And let the artists, even within universes, like, what, is, what do you want to say? What is your voice? So Stephen Mildred got to like, calm down for a second. Universes. What do we want to create? What are you dreaming of? What do you want to write about? What do you want to talk about? How do we want to move through life? So it's like, you know, it's something that we've learned to do with our ensemble and hopefully other people can do it with their theaters. Here, here. You know, there's so much that the field takes for granted. Like you go into the average regional theater rehearsal room. That's a fucking dictatorship, man. There is not a democratic or equitable principle anywhere in the practice. And it's insane. Like, you don't want a society like that. Why are you doing a workroom like that? Mm -hmm. And again, that's, I think, a way an ensemble challenges that sort of fascistic tradition. Organizations that have new play development on their docket already seem to be ready to sort of grab onto ensembles in some way, or at least bring them in or think about them or talk about them. Right. There's risk in having ensembles and there's a risk in having that sort of artist in your room. And there was a risk to having someone who might challenge the, this system of making. And then it's also like, do they speak to your community? So I find that really fascinating. And that's why I sort of I started at the top saying, who do you make work for? Because I'm so curious that from what I've seen, you like I love universes because you lay it on there and we all go, oh, 
yeah, if only I have these perspectives in my lives every day. But I think it's I think it's understanding that, oh, we need to have these perspectives. And that's a risk for the ye old regional theater to like pull up and say, yeah, I want to have, I want to invite that risk into my theater. But yes, also to what we are all saying that I, I agree that there is also a financial component to that because if my community doesn't jam with this, then my bottom line, my box office gets upset. My marketing department gets upset. And then, you know, my, my, my board of directors gets upset at the artistic director for making such a rash decision. Right. So I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is, is thanks to everyone, all those organizations that take the risk. It's risky. Um, I think, I think what we're also talking about too, is just changing the lens of power in, in institutions and who quote unquote, gatekeepers you know and, and what does that mean and who are you involving um in a power position in these organizations and how you deal with community some theaters can be in, a, in an area where they don't have to deal with the community at all the bulk of their audience is coming from subscribers so the community around them they really don't have to deal with them at all and maybe it'll be a special show that pops up and it'd be a special flyer and they'll go to the barbershops and the hairdressers or wherever they need to go or synagogues if it's something <laughs> like it's very specific, but for the most part, it kind of sits the way it sits. And because of the pandemic, because of the civil unrest in the country itself, if you don't deal with your community, your community is going to deal with you. You know, I, I used to say this, you know, at, at different places, and I do mean it, and it's a little bit scarier now, but it's like, if there's a civil, if there's civil unrest going on somewhere in the country, let's say in a city, and they're going down destroying buildings, right that are you know government buildings or whatever and they tore down the, the pre police precinct and then they arrive to your theater do they burn it down or do they pass it by and if they burn it you know that says a lot if you have something that means something to that community they will pass it by they Who will protect it? it if it's not they will burn it down and if you're there, and you know, obviously you say hypothetically, but if you have to think hypothetically, if this community rolls up or they won't stop somebody and they're something. coming down and they get to your theater, what do they do to it? And it, and, and how, which, how they interacted with it should be what everyone's thinking in terms of, again, we are, we're a new society. We're different. The rules, a lot of things have been sort of blown open. How is these same institutions going to deal with the new playing field they're dealing with now. Yeah. You can't run it the same way. You can't have the same people running it that way. You need different, just as smart people to come into the room with your traditional theater people who do X, Y, and Z so the theater will feel comfortable and they don't feel like they have to change everything. And it won't all fall apart. But you need, you need <laughs> a new, fresh approach in rooms and how institutions interact with community. I mean, you know, our whole, our whole career has been everywhere we go, we try to interact with the community and we almost force the institution to have to be bothered with the community that we know it's a special event or something like that. Like if they bring a group of kids for a show, we make sure we stay and talk to those kids and take pictures with those kids and interact with those kids in ways that the theater would be like, if they asked us an artist to do it, the artist would say no. Right. <laughs> but we do it on our own just because we know for those kids to come, this is their experience. But does the theater do it after we leave? No. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you keep that practice going? So I think it's that. I think it's, it's, it is leadership. 
It is about challenging structure. And sometimes, most of the time, these theater institutions and their structure are only going to listen to people who know how to talk that language to get that far up in power. If you can't speak that language, then you will not get that in that far in that hierarchy. So it's about learning all this stuff, all these conversations in all these different ways in, in different communities and places that you that you function as an artist. You know, we've been with designers, we've been with community, we've been with artistic directors, you know, we've been with so many different types of people and know how to talk in all those rooms. This is what you have to bring to an organization now in the year 2021 that's going to interact with the theater community, the community, and the emergence of social media. How do you deal with that? You know, we do your your theater is not the hot place to go on a Friday night anymore. <laughs> you know, like there are other things to do. So what are you going to do to make that, to keep that energy going? Jeffrey, you were talking about risk. Certainly there is emotional risk sometimes for some institutions in having an ensemble there. Number one, in terms of, well, if the community doesn't groove with the ensemble, you know, the, the financial hit. I think those sort of financial risks are largely overblown in the minds of producers. And I, and I say that partially because, you know, I'm 150 years old and watching what American theater did to itself for decades, you know, it was the, there was this rule, absolute rule that people wouldn't go to new work. Every theater and many theaters still say it. And it's nonsense. And what the, what the regional theater did to itself was just over decades, just keep making itself smaller and smaller and smaller. And yes, there are some people who appreciate the familiarity of a, of a story they know, but it, at some point it just becomes a big fat bore and people don't come to the theater anymore. It's like, do I thank you, Arthur Miller, but I know, yes, <laughs> attention must be paid, right? <laughs> I got that. And so it, it was astonishing to watch people only say, I mean, and, 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 you know, thank Mellon for really investing in theaters, supporting new work, but the capacity to create new work was already there, right? It's just theaters didn't believe that it would actually work, which was nonsense, right? And so, you know, they do the same show over again. And then even then when they're like, well, maybe we should try a new play, it'd be like, but it can only have two cast members, right? <laughs> well, and unsurprisingly, some two-handers can be great, but that is not necessarily embrace the full dynamic possibility of human beings together on the stage, right? It doesn't give the audience the variety that they want. And again, so it's you make yourself smaller and smaller and smaller because of your lack of imagination about what is possible from a producerial and artistic perspective. And, you know, I think we're digging ourselves out of some of these holes, but to everything Stephen just said, there as a field, we have to accelerate our embrace of the energy aesthetics and the, the ethics of things like ensemble-based and community-based work, or it's just going to die. And frankly, it deserves it. <laughs> right? Like, what's the fucking point? The world is fucking burning down. Like, you don't think we can try something new for a while and really invest and like go big or go home. And what's the worst thing that happens? Your theater folds, right? Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather die trying? You know what I mean? Like, and I know, and the boards are not 
that's not their job, but it should be, right? To be like, oh, well, you suck. Time to close. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. But I do, I mean, I think frequently we look at the wrong metrics to assess risk. Is that was my 45 minute way of making that very simple observation. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because to bring an ensemble of four or five people, right? You look at that as like, oh man, there's just so many bodies and it's going to cost so much money and I have to get housing and I got to get travel for those people. Um, five people, right? In an ensemble. Now, Compare that to the thing that they end up actually doing. They'll devise the work instead, right? So now they'll pay this artistic director to sit and collaborate, and you have a dramaturg, you have all these people, right? Who you still have to fly in, and you also have to house. And now the, that director's fee is phenomenally larger than what the ensemble's entire fee might have been. So at the end of the day, even though they feel like they saved money because they didn't have as many bodies in the room, they actually spent more money because now you had a person who probably has never even devised or created ensemble-like work in this space, and it's taking a lot longer for the work to be developed, and their fee is a lot larger. And we've actually seen this. You know, this is like truth, you know, where they will, like our fee is smaller but our body is bigger so it is more threatening as a as a i can't even wrap my head around that but i'll pay somebody else a larger fee and it'll just be one person or two people but you still you still ended up paying more money so it's kind of like it's it's one of those situations where people really have to evaluate not only the, the the money you're spending or the size of the groups, but also the value in what kind of work is being created. Who is creating that work with the artistry that, you know, everybody loves to brag about the craft, the craft of theater. You know, if we all have a craft. We've all studied. We've all developed. We've all built. Right. And the fact of the matter that is that a young person today can come out of around the corner and trump us all with all of our craft because they have the great idea and they have the great story and they are, they're amazing. And that's as simple as that. I went to high school and you all went here and I'm still better. So it's kind of like, we need to just be careful in, in, in like trying to see things like this, you know, like it's like, oh, it's so big and it's so intangible and so impossible. Mm -hmm. It's so difficult. Um, and just be like, how do we make it get done? And that was one of the things that Allison did when we when we came in through American Revolutions. And that was, I think, that why we gravitated to Allison the way that we did. It was like, okay, so let's get it done, you know? And it wasn't anybody feeding us or forming us or molding us or pushing us. We chose our own designers, our own director. We, we chose everything ourselves. It's not like OSF even pushed a director on us. We went and saw Lisa when she directed Ruined here and we left that place crying. We were like, oh my God, who directed Ruined? And we knew Lisa from way back in the days when she was a fellow at New York Theater Workshop, right? And here she is directing Ruined and we're like <gasps> sobbing and we were like, she has to do party people. And, and Allison's like, okay, great, let's do it. What do you want? What do you do? So imagine, so that that's the reason why we have stayed around Allison so long. It's like... <laughs> Let's play because you know why? Here's the truth. The truth is that Allison is from Cornerstone. Cornerstone carries that same ensemble energy, 
you know, that same, the, that creative energy, that community. So because we're like-minded, and I think that that's what theaters need more of, people that are, have been on the ground, you, you know, you may see us now, you may be like, oh yeah, they're institutional folks, you know, but the fact of the matter is that Allison, look at Allison before OSF, look at Mildred and Steve before OSF. Those are our roots, that's our DNA, that's how we move through life, that's how we move through the world. And whether it's at OSF or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. I could go back home. I could be, we could be anywhere on the planet. We've been across the, the pond, like we've been everywhere. And it's always been the same. We're bringing that same DNA from the community and the people that we came from. And we move forward with it, regardless of where we are. So it's not like this is going to end. And that's kind of how we all move through life. And that's why we stayed, you know, because we, we, we knew that there were people around here that would just be like, Oh yeah. So let's do it. Let's go. What do you have? Let's try it. And, and to be free to fail, like to be free, like, well, maybe it won't work, but why not? Let's try it. You know? So that that's fun. That's how we like to exist. All this being said, if, if institutional views may be changing or if they need to change in order for ensembles to be made apart or invited in as a part of that risk or as a part of that connection to their community, you know, where do you think that ensemble work is going right now? Um, I was, I think I've seen more ensembles come together now, much more people thinking along those lines. So that's exciting. I think because of, and I'm not saying it's just because of us, but I mean, there's a few ensembles that have broken through regional theaters and perform a lot as ensembles in ways that did not exist 10 years ago. Yeah, Culture Clash, City um, Theater. You know, Culture Clash, City, you know, like, there's been a few companies that have broken through whatever that means to that level. So in that regard, yes. And I think because of that, theaters are getting a little bit more like curious in terms of, well, how does this work? You know, like once you get to a certain point in terms of your work and people want to work with you, then they have to have a conversation with you on how to actually do it. So I think there's been more of those conversations going on. Like, so how does this work? If you look at Campo Santo, um, which is in the Bay, and Sean San Jose, who now runs Magic Theater, um, is a beautiful example of someone who comes out of our world of ensemble building and community and activism, and now he's running the Magic Theater. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be really curious to see what does that, how does that reverberate in the field? And he's an artist. Is there any other regional theaters that are willing to take a chance of looking at any artists to run their institutions? not just come and sort of be around, not just come to a show, not even necessarily just be the ensemble in residence, but really come and have some semblance of power to really run an institution. And obviously you have to pick those who know how to do program. it. Really to be there. And I mean, everyone else, you know, you'll see a singer who will have a, a, a recording or a record label and can run that or run this business or that business. So why can't theater artists who understand theater in a whole, you know, in, in the same way, in a different way, run an institution. And I think that would also impact the ensemble world as well. If, if ensembles are really at the table in terms of, you know, having a voice and having some power. The fact that this huge sort of generational turnover is happening in so many institutional theaters combined with the pandemic. I mean, the, the, the possibility of a new future exists. And we'll just see if, you know, collectively we can meet the moment. Because I also think there's so many moments in the process of creating theater that are just deeply fucking lonely in traditional institutional theaters. You know, people with singular titles and 
in theory, the, you know, theaters are so collaborative, but, uh, but I mean, the, the, the process of making art is so collaborative and theater is, it's also extraordinarily hierarchical, right? And it's, and in that hierarchy lies so much of the source of the loneliness and the pandemic took this loneliness and it's like, you know, not only did we lose so many people and are still losing so many people, but it like just ripped the skin off of any process that made you lonely and like no more, right? Like I'm not gonna engage in those things that make me feel lonely and less human. And theater is, the, is so incredibly human at its finest. And if we can, following the model of ensemble theaters and beautiful artists like universes, if we can remember what it's like to have the skin ripped off you and be cared for by our art form and to care for our society and its people through this art form, then we have, we will be making the world better on all these different levels at the same time. My hope is that ensembles continue to thrive and that all theaters more eagerly both embrace and support the work, but embrace and support the ethos of deeply equitable collaboration. Anything else that I didn't give you all a chance to say in this past hour and a half? It's still beautiful, um, and I mean this sincerely, to be on, you know, on a Zoom call like this with Allison and, and yourself in terms of it, it really, in terms of the, the stretch of the work, um, you, you know, how we move around the world as human beings on the planet and who we connect with and just happy to be able to, to be lucky and honored to share space with, to create work with is priceless and you don't get that everywhere. And I'm glad that we were able to pay attention I'm glad that we were able to connect with folks who are ready to connect and ready to, 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 to really blow open. Because even what OSF was doing at the time, you know, many theaters weren't even doing that or producing the same work. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny, and I don't mean this as, as a slight to anybody, but I was talking to Richard Montoya very early in the process, and he said to me, now you know, before Bill and Allison, OSF would have never produced Culture Clash or Universes. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I can dig that. So, you know, just in terms of like, now, did I know Libby? No. There was a shift. But there was, there was a definite shift in the perception of what the possibilities were and how a company like Culture Clash and ourselves felt like, well, we didn't really feel like we would have fit that mode. But this mode that is here now with Bill and Allison and Chris Acebo, we feel that here and, and the OSF family, like we feel that. So to be having this conversation many years later, um, our kids are all out in the world. <laughs> there is another shift, <laughs> you know. This is another uh, shift. You know, yeah. but to still be connected that way as people on the planet, as colleagues, as friends, as families, a beautiful thing. You know, when I talk to students and things like that, and, and when I, at the end of the class, I'm like, you know, like, do you see what you created in this time? And, and I tell them, you are now part of, an autistic family, like whether you know it or not, you have now joined, you know, the, the club, the party, the, you know, you're part of it now. How much you stay connected with it or how much you want to interact with it is up to you. But when you make that commitment to it, you're not part of it. So when you find like-minded individuals in heart, body, and soul, it's a beautiful thing. So I try to recognize that because it doesn't happen all the time. Um, 
That's very kind. You're very kind, and I love you both very much. <laughs> and I want to. Okay. We're telling the truth. I also want to. I just. Uh, I do want to talk about one thing, which is the sort of hands across time of the movement of the the movements of the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And what I mean, I, I think this show call, party people always calls to the moment that we're in, right? Because it is about movements, about collective action. And there's nothing that can be accomplished in society without collective action. And I actually, I have this whole theory, which I won't talk about now, but like one of the challenges of traditional theater is you have the singular individual on a journey, right? And it's so unusual. And one of the astounding things about party people, it is a portrait of movement. And it's a portrait of sometimes troubling and flawed and all the things, collective effort toward making the world better. And we need more of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, because when we see movements on stage, then it gives us a map to make them for ourselves. So you get this sort of double meaning of not only the collective of universes portraying the collective action of political movements is like wonderful and life-changing if we can learn from it. And so, you know, I hope the show just is produced and produced and produced and produced because there will always be that call for collective action and we all need maps on how to do it. Yes. I think that as we all also kind of continue to move along and become 200 years old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I, you, Mildred. I think, I think that it's important, you know, and, and this is what we focused on in Party People is trying to bring out the humanity, like just, just show that these were just regular people, you know, like the, the thing is that we put these, we put everything, everybody on a pedestal. And this was just somebody's little kid. This was somebody's, I always say, whenever I see somebody, especially like a houseless person on the street, I'm like, that's some, somebody's baby. Somebody held that baby once, you know what I'm saying? So can, can, if, if you stop looking at the circumstance or you start or you pull yourself away from the discomfort, right, or you try to put yourself higher than the other, right, and you just look at it as at one point we were all just in diapers and held and hopefully loved, then that kind of gives us a different perspective, you know, and it's like nobody, all of us, we've all kind of moved through life trying to make our way. The Panthers, you know, they were all somebody's baby, you know, you look at you look at the Panthers. Like, oh my God, it's a Black Panther, it's a young lord. Look at the presidents nowadays, right? So everybody, oh, it's the president. One time you were just the baby in diapers, you know, just like me. And I think that that's kind of how we try to tell that story of party people. And sometimes you made mistakes, and sometimes you fell, and then you got up, and then you learned something new, and then you built a little, you know, Lego set, and then now all of a sudden you're holding a picket sign, and then. But life has taken you through this journey. And I think that that's the beauty of party people and party people, even though we were we were we created it, it created itself because of everybody who was a part of it and all the stories we were trying to tell and how we were kind of layering them in and out of each other. I mean, I think that that's the that's the way that we love creating. That's the thing that kind of keeps us alive. When we can look back, whatever was on stage, like if I was watching it on stage and I, and I didn't write it, I could feel that I need to learn something from it. You know, if, if you create something that you yourself can learn from, then I think you will continue to do it, which is probably why we've stayed in this this long, 
you know, and sometimes we've had money and sometimes we haven't. And sometimes just like every other artist in America, sometimes you have a gig and sometimes you don't and you still got to pay that rent, you know. But the idea is that I can't stop doing this because I have a, a lot of learning to do still. And I can only learn through making art, if that makes any sense. And I think that most of like, you know, culture clash, I look at them all the time. You know, you look at Herbert, his paintings, you look at, you just, you're like, they're learning, continuous learning and moving and reshaping and remolding, especially ensembles are always learning with each other. You learn from each other. You're, you know, we get into arguments. Like it's part of the, the joy that we get from doing this, regardless of the pandemic. And we might bring new tools with us that we were able to learn in the, in the great pause. How do we move forward with it and through it? So yeah, you know, American theater, thank you for, for welcoming us and inviting us. And now let's figure out what this means moving forward. Because if I can't be the same person I was before this pandemic, there's no way I'm going to allow you to be the same person you were before the pandemic. Michael Rhodes said you'd be a fun interview. Michael! <laughs> he was right. And I thank you all so, so, so very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay, much appreciated. Bye. 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 Wednesday, Bye. I'm going to call you before then so we can make a plan. Okay. Okay. Love you, Allison. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. That story about Mildred and Steven's kiddos asking, can we stay? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's my heart. That's the social part of this podcast mission, right? How can we be socially sustainable in this world where nothing is consistent about theater? And the commission being an amount that was meaningful for them. That's what it's all about. We're humans, y'all. Let's treat each other as such. Mildred's idea about how this work needs to get shared, particularly that of the American Revolutions Project at OSF, is exactly how I feel about ensemble theater work and how it needs to be shared. The work we do in the theater should belong to everyone, not just one region. We need to share the cultures, the expressions, the ideas. And sometimes it'll hit an audience in the right spot. But even if it doesn't, it will still make an impression. As Allison said, producing a thing that has a producer in it is next-level thinking. It's allowing an authority to take over a process. As she says, there has to be a really intentional willingness and capacity to actually change up your processes. There are two groups iterating at the same time, and that's really tricky to navigate. And I love how Allison stated that the financial risk for producers is overblown, Thinking back on it, producing an ensemble theater at a regional theater that has capacity is not unlike producing a new play development process. The audience is going to take a risk in coming to see it, and the theater has trust in the ensemble to make that. Your audiences want to take that risk and make that jump with you, and your adventurous groups who are ready to see it will be ready for it, which I really love. Stephen tied it all the way back to what Patricia Garza said about the director's circle in season two, episode one, that ensembles need to be able to translate to a regional theater setting, that trust of content is important. Regional theater has made itself smaller based on what they believe is producible. I hope that they can see what is possible from this very fruitful partnership. Which leads perfectly to our next guest in the season, Michael Rode, who is 
leaning into what's possible with shared leadership in not one, but two of his organizations. I can't wait to ask more questions with y'all next time, folks. And until then, here's your sound check lightning round. Your favorite salutation. <laughs> what's up, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> my dog no, is barking. Yeah, my favorite salutation is their dog. <laughs> what's your favorite what's exclamation? Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I Ditto. What's your oh, wait, can we say fuck on the podcast or do you prefer no fucks? No, we give lots of fucks here. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, motherfucker, motherfucker, motherfucker. Favorite mode of transportation? Train. Car. Car. Your favorite kind of ice cream? Vanilla. <laughs> Sorry. O- Oreo. Coffee. What would you be doing if not theater? I would be a musician. I would be a singer and or a photographer. I would be, I used to think I'd be a neuroscientist, but now I think I'd be a climate change person full time. What is the opposite of universes? Ooh. One universe. That's <laughs> <laughs> the opposite? <laughs> universe. Oh, wow. Um, I, although I don't believe such a thing is possible, I will go with subatomic high-speed particles. My brother is a high-energy physicist, so (laughs) that's all I know about it. That is literally now is the extent of my knowledge, you know. Yeah, I guess that we would would be the only, that there will be no universe, just Just a little boring. One, just one. (laughs) Just one universe. How boring is that? No, that's perfect. That's perfect. What? Maybe the opposite is really nothing at all. Small bang. <laughs> no bang. No bang. Yeah, no bang. <laughs> this has been another episode of From the Ground Up. The audio bed was created by Kiran Vadula. You can find him on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and flutesatdawn.org. This podcast is produced as a contribution to HowlRound Theatre Commons. You can find more episodes of this series and other HowlRound podcasts in our feed on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to search HowlRound Theatre Commons Podcasts and subscribe to receive new episodes. If you love this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can also find a transcript for this episode, along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the Commons. Oh,